I had left Michigan and went to a school in Ohio for my freshman year. <clears throat> and I opened this journal, and I'd only filled out about 10 pages or so, but the pages contained the depths of my sorrow. I hadn't read it in 20 years, and I hated reading it. It was weird. I was reading it, and I, I immediately wanted to throw it away, and I did. I actually didn't keep it. Um, I almost wish I had to reference some of my pain here today, but that was the first time I had ever experienced depression, what we commonly refer to as situational depression, which in the medical term is called an adjustment disorder. But that was not my last. <clears throat> so I'm a therapist who works with those who are depressed. But I don't think I'm up here as that, to present a professional view on depression. I don't want to present facts or information that you could find on the internet or that you could read in a book. I hope I was asked to speak on this today because I'm a person who's trying to learn how to be near to people in their depression with right theology and can impart some of what God has taught me through my experiences with friends and clients who are depressed and through my own short bouts of depression. I have a couple goals for today. I will not be giving tips on how to combat depression. I will be giving ideas for supporting those who are depressed because as a society and as a church, we do pretty poorly with that one. But the main thing I'd like to get across is God's posture and position to those who are depressed. I want those who are experiencing depression today to not feel so alone. Man, the church as a whole has been silent on mental health. And because the church has been silent, the message conveyed by that silence has been damaging. There's myths like, if you love Jesus, you should only feel joy. A real Christian can see the blessing in all things and lead, that leads to happiness. God hates people who complete suicide. People who complete suicide go straight to hell. If you feel pain, you should stuff it so you present Christians to the world as these perfect people who only experience the joy of following Jesus. There has been a lot of pain caused by those messages. Within the church, depression rates are the same as those outside of the church. So merely attending church and seeking God are not the cure for depression. But church should be a place where those who are experiencing depression and who are hurting can come and be held, held by a congregation and held by correct theology and held by a savior who is familiar with depression and who is not afraid of your pain or turned off by it. The lie I believe I experienced during my second and third bouts of depression, which came in the form of postpartum depression after the birth of my first two kids, was that if I was strong enough, I could beat this depression. I grieve, like even to this day, the time I feel like I lost with my kids because my pride and my misbeliefs prevented me from seeking out more support, from telling people that I wasn't okay, and from accessing the support of medication. I held that depression alone for the most part. My prayer for you experiencing depression today is that you do not suffer alone. My prayer is that through this teaching, you can feel more understood by those around you and even understand yourself, and we can also understand the incorrect teachings and beliefs that may be present. An old coworker of mine has a sign up in her office that reads, think happy, be happy. I cringe whenever I see that. I'm not saying all of these kind of signs are bad if you have them in your house, they're not bad, but for those with depression, those messages can be very defeating. While we were decorating our office, it was really hard to find trinkets for the shelves or signs that didn't have some sort of minimizing people's pain or simplifying it, as though just being happy is easy. Keep your chin up, smile, think positive, you're strong enough. That puts the onus on someone for their own happiness to change their mood. And for those with depression, doing anything like that feels often impossible. Sorry. So I want to share some thoughts with you about depression from a 17-year-old client of mine. 
Later, you'll hear the voice of another one of my clients who's an adult, because they are absolutely my best teachers. So I'm going to read from what she shared with me, and it should be up on the screen behind you as well. She shared this about depression. You begin to feel worthless, like you're a letdown and deserving of no positive experience. You are stuck in this negative thinking trap and believe only bad of yourself. Depression feels dark and lonely, like you are stranded inside your own little bubble of irrational worry and negativity, and there is no one in the bubble with you. There is no one to listen and absolutely no one to understand. The loneliness soon takes over and you begin to search for a way to compensate. You try to cope in ways considered dangerous and in con ways considered healthy, but no matter what, there is no way out. Eventually, though, you start to feel better. Somehow you catch a glimpse of that like light peeking through the mask of clouds that for so long hindered above your head. And although you're feeling well, depression doesn't ever go away. You live in constant fear, scared of when its wrath will hit next. Smiling feels unlucky, like being happy will somehow jinx you. You become convinced the world is out to get you and is consciously depriving you of joy. You stop taking risks because the thought of getting hurt is absolutely terrifying. Depression is an endless battle that is not easy to win. So this young woman, 17-year-old, is letting us into her world with depression. You might relate to a lot of that. Or you might feel for the first time that someone put into words what you do feel. Or you now might be understanding what it's like for a loved one of yours or for a friend or coworker. Another client of mine, an adult client, she shared that depression feels like I'm in a hole. It's a dark hole, so deep and en encompassing that even when people tell me there's a way out, it still feels inescapable. She says, at the very worst, her depression makes her feel like she's outside of her body, like her body is disconnected from her being, and she's watching herself perform her actions. She makes me feel like she wants to jump out of her skin. And she says to get some semblance of relief, she fantasizes about self-harming and completing suicide. But that doesn't even provide relief, and it only magnifies her feelings of hopelessness and the lack of desire to live. So one described it as a black hole, and the other as a bubble of darkness. The teen said that there is no one inside of her bubble of darkness with her, and the other shared that she felt alone in her black hole. Those are images that I can counter with truth, that even when it feels that way, there is always someone inside your bubble or your hole with you, someone who understands and whose tears join yours. The difference between the Christian faith and the faith of other religions is that we believe that we have a God who can relate to all that we experience emotionally. So Jesus is familiar with hopelessness, loneliness, rejection, depression, abandonment, helplessness. I don't know if he actually experienced depression, but I know he experienced the emotions of depression. Rejection, hurt feelings, hopeless? Check. All of his disciples denied him and left him at his most vulnerable time when he was moving towards his crucifixion. Helpless? Check. Hanging on a cross in indescribable pain. Grief and isolation? Yep. Knowing that God, his father, the one he had always been with, had turned away and was silent. Not only is Jesus familiar with suffering, but he chose it. He chose to enter into the pain, to possible depression, for you. And he will always enter into your bubble of darkness or your black hole with you. I would love for you to feel more confident entering the bubble of darkness or holes with and for others in your life, too. There is someone who, in my small group, that when she cries, she does not apologize. She allows the pain and sorrow just to be present without apology. I always say she's my crying mentor. Because we've gotten to a point as a society where we feel like we have to apologize for our pain. 
People even come into therapy with me and they cry. They say things like, I'm sorry, I don't even know why I'm crying. Or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm just really upset. As though tears and pain are something we have to apologize for, even in therapy. And I'm not sure when that became our norm. When someone has experienced loss, society tells them it's appropriate and acceptable to grieve for a few days, maybe even a few weeks. But then when we see them a few months later when we ask, hey, how are you? What do we want them to say? We want them to say, oh, I'm better, thanks, I'm doing okay. Because we don't want them to say they are not okay, because we are not comfortable with other people's pain. We want to wish it away, we want to fix it, we want to avoid it. My client says that when she puts on a good face in public, people will comment, you look great, you must be doing so much better, when the reality is what you see is just temporary. I think people don't want to know, I think people don't know what to do. I don't think it's that they don't care. I think it's that they don't know what to do when people are depressed and in pain. So we look to our Savior for tips. He did not apologize for his pain in the Garden of Gethsemane, for his tears, for needing his friends, or for crying out to God. And he sat with those in pain with love. So I'd love to share some insights. I would love to have, I have two clips that model this well. The first one is from Inside Out, so some of you with kids may have seen this. So she's going to pull that up now, and we'll watch it for a minute. Riley can't be done with me. Hey, it's gonna be okay. We can fix this. We just need to get back to headquarters. Which way to the train station? I had a whole trip planned for us. Hey, who's ticklish, huh? Here comes the tickle monster. Hey, Bing Bong, look at this. Oh, here's a fun game. You point to the train station and we all go there. Won't that be fun? Come on, let's go to the train station. I'm sorry they took your rocket. They took something that you loved. It's gone forever. Sadness. Don't make him feel worse. Sorry. It's all he had left of Riley. I bet you and Riley had great adventures. Oh. They were wonderful. Once we flew back in time, we had breakfast twice that day. Sadness! It sounds amazing. I bet Riley liked it. Oh, she did. We were best friends. Yeah, it's sad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay now. train station is this way. How did you do that? I don't know. He was sad, so I listened to what... Hey! There's the train! You can stop it now. Thanks. Okay. So how many of us are like the character Joy? I know I've been that person before. You know, we try to distract, try to tickle someone out of depression or hard things. When Sadness sat with Bing Bong and empathized, Joy even said, Sadness, don't make him feel worse. But all Sadness did was just validate and let the sadness be there, saying he was just sad, so I listened. And here's another illustration by Brene Brown. 
And this is one of my favorites as well, so she's gonna pull this up to play. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective-taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. (laughs) Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. So empathy might come natural to you, or maybe you cringed when you watched the clip because you are an at least person trying to silver line, or you saw yourself as the person offering the sandwich. There's no judgment. I'm not trying to judge, but just knowing that there's a better way to do this. Brene says, rarely can a response make something better. Only connection can. Pastor Nate noted this too in his um, recent teaching on addiction where he shared that the opposite of addiction was not sobriety, but connection, human connection. And so here today, do know this. You do not have to fix the depression of others. Your job is not to fix them or their feelings. You do not have to come up waves to make them feel better. You just have to stay and move close, letting them know they are not alone in this struggle. Here are some things that up on the slide that can be helpful. Things like, I don't even know what to say. I'm just so glad you told me. That was Brene's. You're not alone. Thanks for sharing. I am with you and for you in this. It must be so hard to feel the way you do. I'm here to listen. Man, that's tough. What do you need from me right now? And how can I support you? 
So sometimes just having, even if you pick one that would be your go-to, how can I support you, or I don't know what to say, I'm just glad you told me. Those are ways that we can connect with people, and we don't heal their depression, but man, do we make them feel like we are with them in it. My adult client shared that she feels most don't understand depression or how to handle it. She feels like some are well-meaning, but they still remarks, make remarks that seem insensitive. She said, I just want to feel like there's a human in my life who cares whether I live or die, not to be brushed off. She went on to share what she hates most is when people minimize it because she functions at a high level. So she pursues higher education, she exercises, and so they mistake her discipline for her depression not being that bad. So knowing that people care about her gives her a reason to live. When someone says to her, you're going to be alive tomorrow, right? and tells her to check in with them or they with her, she feels that prevents her from following through with her suicidal ideations. To get her out of her feelings and share how depressed she is feels like a really preventative measure. She wants to be reminded of her strengths, to be told depression is just temporary, to be encouraged to do self-care, and sometimes she needs others to think for her in the moments when the depression is so heavy because she can't figure out what to even do next. So could we as a church be a people who do not leave those in depression? Can we stay near? Can we weep with and for them? Because through us, we can communicate their worthiness, their value, their belovedness, all the things our Father in heaven wants to impart to them. So I want to look now at some stories in the Bible. We're going to look first at the story of Hagar, who was an Egyptian slave given to Abraham to bear a child since his wife Sarah could not. Um, in, in this scripture, it's uh, Sarai, Sarai um, was her name before God renamed her. So we're going to look. When Hagar gets present, she begins to despise Sarah. So verse 5 then says, Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that was beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Then the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. So I imagine that Hagar was experiencing many symptoms of depression, hopelessness, helplessness, despair, isolation. But the Lord had seen her and those feelings and pursued her into the desert. And this is how Hagar responds. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God that sees me, she said. I have now seen the one who sees me. And the story picks back up in chapter 21. So Sarah eventually got pregnant and had a child. But she wanted to get rid of Hagar and her son, Ishmael, because she did not like the way that Ishmael was treating her son, and she did not want him to have any part of the family's inheritance. So it says, The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to what Sarah tells you, because through Isaac your, your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of a slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with a boy. She went on her way and wandered into the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under the bush. Then she went off and sat down a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch this boy die. And she sat there and began to sob. 
Helpless, hopeless, isolated, lonely, yet again, probably preparing to die herself. But the story doesn't end there for Hagar and her son. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. So in verse 17, it says, God heard the boy crying. So God hears you crying. He hears your loud sobs, and he hears your quiet whimpers in depression. He came near to Ishmael, and he comes near to you today. I also want to look at the story of Elijah. So Elijah was a prophet and a miracle worker in the Old Testament. He defended the worship of God and grieved that the Israelites had begun to worship and follow a false deity named Baal. Baal, 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 anyone? Baal, we'll go with Baal. So Queen Jezebel encouraged this pagan worship. So Elijah opposed it and all who endorsed it. And so this led to this big confrontation up on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the false prophets. There before the people of Israel, God called the nations and said, you must choose whom you're gonna serve. And so it's either gonna be the Lord or it's gonna be Baal, and it's not possible for you to serve both. And so they each built an altar to its own deity, and they called down fire from heaven to prove which one was the true God. Elijah did everything possible to to prove that Yahweh was God. He even soaked the sacrifice, he built a moat so that only powerful fire from heaven could consume the offering. But after that happened, people fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah had all the prophets of Baal put to death, which angered Jezebel. So now that's where we're gonna pick up the story. So he had just done these amazing miracles, seen the power of God. God had been with him up until this point, constantly speaking to him. And so this is what happens now in the story. Now King Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah and said, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. So Elijah's life was in danger. You would think he would entrust God, who'd just shown a miracle after miracle, had spoken to him, had sent his power upon him, but yet, let's see what happens next. Elijah ran, and he was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, and he sat down under it, and he prayed that he may die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush, and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over some hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. The Lord appears to Elijah, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled the cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord then said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Abram. So God provided him with food and drink and angel visits. And then he gave him instructions, where to go and what to do. Notice that he was not angry. I think he made a point of that and like he didn't come in the earthquake and he didn't come in the fire. He didn't come in the angry kind of bouts of, the, of weather. He did not condemn Elijah for contemplating death and desiring death so quickly after seeing God in his power. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. I've had enough, Lord. Anyone ever said that? Maybe this week, maybe even this morning. Anyone ever asked God to take their life? My guess is there's a few people in here that have. And he said, I'm not better than my ancestors. I know that comparison is often in the depression too. And yet here's Elijah, a prophet who just witnessed the power of God in indescribable ways, who just went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, a man chosen and loved by God. And yet he said, I've had enough, Lord. I've had enough, just take my life. And when he said this to God, the God didn't just answer him, he pursued him. God then gives him instructions, where to go and what to do next. But here's what's important. When you are in the desert of depression, God is pursuing you too. He is not condemning you. He is not shaming you. He is in the whisper, not in the fire or the earthquake. He is in the gentle. God's response to those who are in the caves contemplating death is to come into the gentle and not in the condemning, to remind us of who we are and what greater purpose we are here for. He had more plans for Elijah and he has more plans for you. So last night I was telling my husband, I said, I think I have too much scripture in here. I think I have you know, the story of Hagar and then the story of Elijah. And he said, well, pray about it and see if you should cut, cut one of them. And so I was praying about it, and I, I think this is God, but I, I got the sense that if I had just kept the story of Elijah, which is what, the one I would have kept, you could have been out there going, yeah, but see, he was a prophet, and he was a miracle worker, and God had chosen him and spoken to him and was close to him, so like, I'm not that person. So of course, God pursued him and was gentle and not condemning. And that's why I'm like, I gotta keep Hagar in, because Hagar was, they were not, she was not God's chosen people. Back in that time, the Israelites were God's chosen people. She was just a slave. She was a foreign slave. And, it, and so God still pursued her. He still was like, it doesn't matter that she's not a prophet chosen by me. She is still chosen by me because she is mine. And so I felt like I had to leave Hagar because if anyone out there just feels like, well, I'm not chosen, I'm not special, I'm not a prophet, God doesn't speak to me, I haven't witnessed miracles, I haven't performed miracles, it's like I'm just this person. Then I think you can relate to Hagar and the fact that God still pursued her and her son into the desert, not once, but twice. And so I... I hope that if you feel like excluded from this, like he doesn't see you and pursue you, know that he wants to and he longs to and he actually is. Um, so, and what's great about Jesus is we're gonna look at this, is just the prophet Isaiah, who 100, 
oh, sorry, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, prophesied about Jesus. In chapter 53, verse four, it talks about Jesus who bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. In verse 11, it references the suffering of his soul. This wasn't random or an unfortunate result. Jesus planned the suffering of his soul. He knew about it beforehand and he stepped to it willingly. Why did he allow this suffering, this soul suffering? Because he knew that if he stepped towards this internal and external pain that was coming his way, we could be made right in our relationship with God. But he also knew that if we internalized it, that, this, that his suffering was actually voluntary, that we might start to begin to know our worth and our value to him, our loveliness in his eyes, that we would begin to understand that we are not alone in our bubble or in that hole of depression or whatever other mental health or life challenges you feel like you're in right now. So in depression, we could say to Jesus, you get it. You are well acquainted with these feelings too. Do not leave me. Stay near, weep with me, weep for me. Bear my griefs and my sorrows, carry my sorrows. So he was the only God that will emphatically answer, I will. So hear this, meeting Jesus does not mean you are fully healed from depression. Meeting him means you can be fully known and loved. Meeting him can be transformative for your darkness and for your depression. Meeting him can make you feel like you're with a father who says, I'll join with you. I'll bear the burden of this darkness if you let me. There is hope today for you who are suffering. Hope because the God with a gentle whisper is near and not far off. Hope because you are not what you believe you are. Hope because your depression is not sinful. Hope because Jesus knows, he really gets it, he really gets you. So lean into the person of Jesus who says, I'm not going anywhere. I will continue to pursue you into the desert. I will get in your bubble or your hole with you. Jesus is described as a shepherd who cares for a sheep. When one of the sheep would leave the herd, he goes after them. He pursues the sheep, he pursued Hagar, he pursued Elijah, and never with condemnation. In our band, we had a lot of people that were sick today, but they were gonna sing a song by Lauren Daigle. It's a song about, called Rescue. I encourage you to listen to it when you're at home. But in this, one of the, my favorite verses says, I will send out an army to find you in the middle of the darkest night. It's true, I will rescue you. I will never stop marching to reach you in the middle of the harvest fight. hardest fight. It's true, I will rescue you. So some of you, maybe even just one of you, I don't know who this message is for, but maybe one of you or some of you are in the middle of your hardest fight. He does not leave us in that place of the pain or the depths of that depression. He continues to come after you to rescue you. And sometimes he does not fix the depression, but it can make us feel less broken and less shameful and more loved and more understood. So hear me when I say this. You may be depressed, but you are not depression. Okay? So you may be depressed, but depression is not your identity. Your identity is as a son or as a daughter of God who is loved, who is worthy, and who is enough. So keep on coming, friends. Jesus will not disappoint in his reaction to your depression.